Good morning to you. Lauren Oliver has written a best-selling teen trilogy about a dystopian society where love is considered a disease, and those who fall into it must be cured of it. And in her first book, the protagonist says, the protagonist says this, I'd rather die my way than live yours. Lady Gaga says, don't you ever let a soul in the world tell you that you can't be exactly who you are. The Renaissance philosopher Michel de Montan once said, the greatest thing in the world is to know how to belong to oneself. The street version of those sentiments is this, it's my life. But is it? Certainly society says as much. There's a young man named Samir Woods, and he performs under the stage name Lil Uzi Vert, and his music is not family-friendly. But he has a song that sums up today's philosophy really well. Its song title is from the chorus, and with the aid of auto-tune, it goes like this. Now I do what I want. 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 So it goes 12 times over. Friends, in a day where now I do what I want is the refrain, we come to a rather jarring text that urges us to abstain. Now before you complain, let me explain. Turn with me in the Word of God to 1 Corinthians 6. And we'll begin at verse 12. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 12. If you don't have a copy of the Word of God with you, please reach out in the pew in front of you. There'll be a blue Bible. If you turn to page 1214 of the blue pew Bible, you will find 1 Corinthians 6. As you turn in the Word of the Lord to 1 Corinthians 6, let's turn to the Lord of that Word and ask Him to bless our time together today. Father, we invite You to take Your Holy Word and through Your Holy Spirit, Make us a holy people. We pray that You'd wash us with the Word, that You'd recalibrate us, that You would do what You promised, that You would regenerate us through the renewal of our minds. We pray, Lord Jesus, that what the culture has squeezed, what the flesh has teased, Your Word will instead lead into new paths of righteousness and joy and indeed victory in Jesus. We pray this in the mighty name above every name, the name of Jesus. Amen. The Word of God says in 1 Corinthians 6, beginning at verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. 
Or do you not know that he who's joined to a prostitute becomes one in body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits outside of his body, but the the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. The last time we were together, we learned from verses 19 and 20 that we need to understand that as believers, we are now temples of the Holy Spirit. This is point one on your outline from last time we were together. We need to understand that as believers, we are now temples of the Holy Spirit, so we ought to glorify God with our bodies and not gratify ourselves by succumbing to our basis instinct. Now look again at verse 19. It's very clear in the passage. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Now drop back to verse 13. Drop back to verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. But God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God's Word is saying Christians are not animals. We're temples. We're not animals. We're temples. Now, the great temple of Aphrodite was there in Corinth. It was an imposing structure you could not miss if you entered the city. And we've learned from our previous study that it employed over a thousand beautiful temple prostitutes. And in sharp contrast here are the Christians. Whereas Aphrodite's followers went up to her temple and they used their body to gratify themselves, Christ's followers are temples. And we're to use our bodies to glorify God. There's a complete difference. Now there's two primary words for temple in the Greek New Testament. And uh, there's the word hieron. Hieron refers to the entire temple structure. The vast architecture that was the temple complex from the portico outside to the court of the Gentiles to all the way into the Holy of Holies. Every square inch. The hieron was the whole temple enterprise. But then there's the word naas. That refers specifically and only exclusively to the sanctuary of God itself. It's the very dwelling place of Almighty God on earth. The naas was where the glory of God resided in the temple until God took it away. Now the word here in 1 Corinthians 6.19 in regards to how believers are God's temple, is the word naas. That means that that believers are God's sanctuary. God's special temple where He has chosen to reside in all of His glory in this broken world. It is the unique place where God's glory should be most clearly seen to those who need to meet 
the Lord of glory. And that's why Satan does everything he can do to turn what should be most clearly seen into a latrine. And that is why you and I are beaten and battered and constantly pressed in the area of sexual temptation. Because the enemy does not want the glory of God to be seen. If the Christian's body is a temple, Satan will do all he can to get us to defile it so others revile him. And that's one of the reasons why Satan seems so relentless in trying to trip us up in the temptations all around us regarding sexuality. It's why some folks in our society today are confused as to what is their core identity. Who am I? And their answer is, is not only inaccurate, but it's, it's oddly focused on their sexuality. You see, the Bible tells us, who am I? I'm an image bearer of the living God created to bring Him glory. But many today see their primary and core identity in their sexual brokenness and their confused fallenness. Each of us has so many facets. When you think about who you are, it's quite telling that many today fixate on just this one facet. Instead of saying, well, I'm a cyclist or a a pianist or an artist, I'm a stockbroker or a fishmonger, many people will identify their primary identity as their sexuality. Isn't that curious? Why would the touchstone of one's identity be defined by one's sexuality? Because confusion in this direction is a powerful derailment of God's design that we glorify Him with our bodies. Whether you're tempted to be confused in regarding to your, your gender versus your sex as though somehow there was a difference between the two. If you're tempted to be uh, with the same gender or, or whether you're tempted to be with the opposite gender, I can assure you you're almost certainly tempted in the area of sexuality. Amen? Singles are, are tempted to promiscuity. Marrieds are, are tempted to adultery. Based on the internet search statistic rankings, everybody's tempted with pornography. Do you see why Satan would target this particular facet of our existence? Because he's more crafty than any beast of the field. Because we were made to glorify God with our bodies. But if we fail to recognize that reality, we will fail to glorify God and we will inevitably inflict Pain on one another with our bodies. Now, let's back up for a second. Why is the Christian God's temple? And the answer is simple. Because it is where the living God, that is the Holy Spirit, has chosen, chosen to dwell. That's what God has chosen. Six times, In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul uses a particular rhetorical question to arrest the straying believer's attention. The Corinthians were were wandering into things that were utterly ruined their Christian testimony to the wider watching community, and, and God wanted to stop that. 
Uh, the Christians, uh, in, earlier in our passage, they were, they were suing each other, and that happened in the public courts, where the public market, so all of our dirty laundry was, was put in front of everyone, and God's Word said, stop it! You're ruining the testimony of Christ. So to arrest the mess, the Holy Spirit prompts Paul's pen in verse 2, in dealing with the issue of litigation among Christians. He says, or do you not know? Pay attention to that, it's going to come up a lot. Or do you not know? The saints will judge the world. And if the world is to be judged by you, are you not incompetent to try these trivial cases? Why are you taking them to the pagans? Then again in verse 3, Paul returns to this arresting query. Do you not know that we're to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to the saints? In his bridge here in chapter 6, uh, between the immorality of litigation among Christians within the congregation to the immorality within our sexuality that we're talking about today, there's a blanket indictment that ought to lead to our enlightenment. That ought to cause a sharp course correction from our sad current situation. And it's found in verse 9. The very familiar rhetorical refrain. Here it is. Underline it in your Bibles. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, the idolater, the adulterer, nor the men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Or do you not know? It's a repeated refrain to get the saints to abstain from that which would stain the name of Christ. That would harm the individual Christian and that would tarnish the witness of an entire congregation. Or do you not know? So whenever we see, or do you not know, we must pay particular attention to that assertion because it highlights some disastrous deviation from God's intention. Requiring the Christian to make a hard mid-course correction. There's a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not in your own understanding. In our passage today, three times, three times in nine verses, Paul is moved to jar us with a particular rejoinder, do you not know? Now the one we're going to focus on today is from verse 19. Verse 19. Or do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Now, if you remember from the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, God resided in a moving tabernacle as the people wandered. And then God built a stationary temple. And that was the sanctuary where God had chosen to dwell. Now, if you go forward in the Bible to the very end and you peek and see how it's all going to end, you find out there's a new heavens and a new earth in the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, when we get to the new heavens and the new earth, you're going to find there's no such structure is needed. 
because no limitation on God's glory is required. In the new heavens, in the new earth, Satan is forever made to dwell in eternal hell. Our old sin nature will have been eradicated because we have been given new bodies that are resurrected. The Bible says those new bodies are uncorrupted and incorruptible. 1 Corinthians 15 puts it like this. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is raised to glory. What is sown in weakness is raised in power. A big difference between the now and the later. The Bible says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable put on the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. And this perishable body must be putting on the imperishable. And the mortal body must put on immortality. So in the new heavens and in the new earth, Satan is incarcerated. The flesh is obliterated. This fallen world is incinerated. So all potentiality for sin is entirely eliminated. In Revelation 21, 22. The disciple Jesus especially loved saw a true vision of this, our eventual, eternal situation. And so from Patmos, the Apostle John writes this in Revelation 21, 22. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city had no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, nor will there be any night. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So so in the Old Testament, God used a a come-and-see approach to reveal His glory to the nations. God situated His specially called people, the Israelites, and they were providentially placed in in a land bridge that connected three continents. Israel's placement was providential, it wasn't accidental. God wanted them to be in that place so the world could come and see His glory. God ensured that the peoples of Africa and of Europe and of Asia, if they wanted to see each other, they would have to walk through His holy land. And He would have them encounter His holy people in the hopes that in so doing, Africans and Europeans and Asians would come and see the glory of God. Now, 
If you traveled the ancient world, if you were from Africa, if you were from Europe, if you were from Asia, in those days, the ancient world was harsh and unforgiving. Once you left the little area of your tribe and your territory, the world got very hard. It was harsh and unforgiving for a foreigner, for a wanderer, for a stranger. But travelers were told of this peculiar place, this one special place where the corners of the fields were left unharvested. So if this room is a field, over there, over there, over there, and over there, we wouldn't harvest. We'd harvest the middle, we'd harvest the sides, but not there, 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 and there. There'd be food there for anybody who was willing to work for it. And, and, and these people did something really economically odd. They didn't go over their fields for a second pass. Because when you collect whatever you're collecting, whether it's grain or whether it's olives, you miss stuff. So you make a second pass because you want to get all your yield. But you'd go to this one place where Africa and Europe and Asia connected. And they didn't do that. At least they weren't supposed to. And so fathers would tell their sons, going off far away, my son, in all of your travels as you go across Africa and Asia and Europe, there's a place where if you're willing to work, you can eat. And that place, with those friendly fields, was Israel. Where God had set His holy temple and He intended to establish a holy people. Now, sadly... The Israelites, they often failed in their mission to be a beacon for the glory of God to the nations of the world. Now, one day, God is going to fill the whole earth. There'll be no need for a temple because all the nations will be able to see the glory of God unobstructed and uninhibited and all the time. Now, we live in today. Today isn't then. It's not the end. It's the now. It's not the past. It's the now. So today, I want to tell you that God is still reaching the nations. But instead of a come and see approach, like in the Old Testament, Jesus has commanded us with a go and tell approach. There's a new methodology from the King. Jesus has commanded the Christian to go and tell. His glorious gospel of grace to all of creation. To be Jesus' witnesses in every tribe and every territory so that every tongue might confess that Jesus is Lord. There was a plan. It was to start in Jerusalem. It was to move on to Judea and Samaria. And then to the very ends of the earth. It's how it got to us in New Jersey. You're pretty far away. You weren't even on the map when that map was given. As these people's tongues are loosed to praise because their hearts have been liberated from the bondage of sin by the shed blood of God's one and only Son, God will be given glory across the earth. So, right now, you, me, we're temples. As believers, the Bible says you and I are temples of the Holy Spirit. We are where the Holy Spirit has chosen to dwell in this world, battered by temptation, shattered by sin, and heading to hell unless they find a mid-course correction through the name of Jesus that only we know. 
So Jesus tells us, hey guys, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be a city on a hill. Now here's how that works. If you're traveling from a long way and you're going to get lost, how do I find the place? Well, it's on a hill. You can't miss it. And cities send out light at night. Can you see New York coming a ways away? Sure you can. If you're stuck in the Midwest and you happen to drive through and you're driving north on 55 and you go, look, there's Chicago. Nope, that's like a, uh, some kind of refinery. <laughs> you're still like 45 minutes if there's no traffic from anything that resembles Chicago. But you saw the lights and you thought maybe. Nope. It was a mirage. We're to be this city on a hill. But friends, Satan wants us to put a bushel over our candle. And he wants to do that through how you live your life how you use your body, your sexuality, so that the light of Christ, instead of, of, of being a beacon, will become just a little flicker, and this world that desperately needs light to penetrate will instead be enveloped with great darkness. So friends, like it or not, believe it or not, if you're a Christian, then the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Jesus promised this in John 14, 16. Jesus said, And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him, for He dwells with you, and He will be in you. Christian. Now, Instead of fixating on when Jesus will return to us, Jesus urged us to live for Him now through the power of His indwelling Spirit within us. Such were His final words to the church in the book of Acts. In Acts 1.8, before His ascension into heaven, Jesus was deliberate to mention. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father is fixed by His own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the very ends of the earth. So how do we stand firm for Jesus in a world that constantly tempts us? 2 Corinthians 1.21 says this, now, it is God who makes both you and us stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. He set His seal of ownership on us. And He put His Spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. That's why He said He's going to come to you forever in the other passage. Because from the moment the Holy Spirit indwells you, He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. You are His now, there's an old Princeton theologian, back when Princeton still had people that believed in Jesus in their theology department, and uh, his name was Charles Hodge. And way back in 1857, theologian Charles Hodge rightly noted that there are two things characteristic of a temple. The first is it's, it's sacred because it's the dwelling place of God Himself. Therefore, it can't be profaned with impunity. God must step in and He must clean the space He chooses to inhabit. And that's why God disciplines those He, as he loves. 
That's why Christians will often say things like this to me, particularly when they're new Christians and are trying to figure it all out. And they say, I don't get it. My unsaved friends I used to hang out with, they seem to get away with all this stuff. They're involved in this and this and this and this. And, but, you know, as soon as I touch it, go near it, walk by it, I get clapped for it. Like, I can't get away with anything. Friends, that's no accident. That's God's intent. To keep His temple from being too defiled. In fact, if you can sin with impunity and seem to get away with it entirely, the question is, do you belong to Him at all? Because God puts His Spirit in His temple. And He will try, gently, or not, to keep it clean. He's more committed that you be holy than you be happy or comfortable. Secondly, the ownership of a temple resides not with man, but with God. Who owns the temple? God owns the temple. And that is, if our bodies are indeed God's temples, then we are not our own. Boy, doesn't that feel like a good American verse? What? Yeah. The Africans would say chokwadi. Truth. God has a purpose for our bodies and that needs to become our purpose or the God and the Christian will be at cross purposes and this will neither bring God glory nor will it lead to our good. You see, there are two very different ways to look at our bodies. There is the world's way. The world's way views our bodies as simply the mechanics of highly evolved beasts. And then there's the Christian way. And the Christian understanding is that our body is a gift from God, which we're to steward because we're temples of God, and therefore we ought to worship God with our, with our bodies. Now, the world says food is made for the stomach, and the stomach for food. So if you have some kind of appetite, you've got to feed it. There's no way around it. If it feels good, do it. Did you know that's not a new philosophy? The Corinthians said just this in our passage. Food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. So if you have an urge and a surge, you ought to fulfill that because you were made for that. So widespread was this philosophy in their world that there was a, a molder of Roman virtue um, he's a, a Roman statesman, he was a senator, he was a historian, he's the first uh, person to write history in Latin, and his name is Cato the Elder, and he's a towering figure among the Romans. Cato the Elder was the one who uh, was essential in the fall of Carthage, and one of the things he wanted to do is he wanted to throw off all the vestiges of, 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 of Greek uh, life, and he wanted to develop a philosophy that was authentically Roman. And he famously, in developing his ethics, Cato the Elder, he famously congratulated a young man he saw just leaving a brothel. That's interesting ethics, isn't it? This guy who's going to develop our ethics, who says, this is the way to be, he sees a guy leaving a brothel, a young man, he goes, good job. This is why Cato said that. He said, when your sexual passions are strong, particularly when you're a young person, it's better to have sex with a prostitute than with another man's wife. The utility, the inevitability. 
the assumption is that we are under the compulsion to have our sexual urges satisfied. So we ought to just choose whatever kind of gratification is the least harmful to others. That was 2,000 years ago. Do we hear similar things today? Our educators tell our young people, it's inevitable that you're going to be promiscuous. And so here are some implements to diminish the probability of getting a disease or becoming pregnant. The logic is just like it was in Corinth. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach is meant for food. Therefore, the body's made for sex, and sex is made for the body. But the Bible says that logic is flawed. This is a false analogy. Because, friends, our bodies are not made for that. They're made for the Lord. And sexual immorality doesn't glorify the Lord. Listen again to verse 13. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. Now, it's easy to rationalize sexual immorality as, as expedient carnality by the false analogy, but I'm just a simple beast and, and I'm really just a mere machine that operates on various instincts and urges. Therefore, if I crave X, I better grab X or else I'm going to be vexed. It's just how I was designed. It's in my DNA. No, friend. The gift of sex was to bring a kind of exhilarating bonding and special deep intimacy exclusively between a husband and a wife who covenant together for life. Something that would bind them together like a special kind of, of tether where the two become one. And this relationship uh, would have a God-designed closeness that was unlike anything else in human experience. A man would leave his mother and father who, who reared him and loved him and bought him toys and did all that, and he would get this wife and he would go, wow. And, and, and you would have children, and as much as you love them, the way it's supposed to work is your closest bond is supposed to be your spouse. And so God put in that relationship, and only in that relationship, this special kind of glue for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, verse 24, and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. You see, sex was a gift. It's not a toy. Our bodies are temples. They're not cages for animals. Our sexual urges are designed to bond us to our spouses. They're not designed to enslave you to your passion. Verse 12, all things are lawful for me but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I'm not going to be dominated by anything. The Christians in Corinth lived in a city that, that, that was celebrated for being sexually liberated. Uh, people came from all over the empire to Corinth to have illicit sexual encounters. To Corinthianize meant to be a sexually immoral person. Uh, and so if you came to Christ in Corinth, well, you were raised in a sex-soaked society. Uh, and, and let me tell you, if you're raised in a sex-soaked society, you're going to have some baggage, amen? And they had you know, deviations and dalliances. And here's what the Bible says to those folks who were raised in a sex-soaked society. If only the Bible was relevant in 2019, amen? Now they're washed. Now they're sanctified. Now they're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 
Now, they're not their own. Now, they were bought with a price. Now, they were honor, to honor God with their body. For their bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, not monuments to selfish practices relegated to their own fulfillment in the moment. Friends, like it or not, we live in modern Corinth, don't we? We really can't avoid it. We live here. That's how it is. Ads on TV, giant billboards we can't help but see, they are all around us. And they surround us. Piped into our homes and, and carried around on our phones or, or a million images that will enslave us and diminish our witness for Jesus. And we can't entirely get away from it, but through Christ, we can overcome it. Do you believe it? The devil does not want you to believe that. Romans 8.37 tells us in all these things, even if you live in Corinth, we are more than conquerors through Jesus who loved us. 1 John 5.4 tells us for everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. You're not going to come clean by trying harder. You're going to come clean by coming to the one who cleans us. The holy Spirit. Now how far do you have to go as a Christian to reach him? He's right here. He's right here. But we can grieve him. We can ignore him. We can harden our hearts to him. We can close the love letter he wrote to us. We can stubbornly, stridently refuse his gentle tug. And he loves us so much, he'll tug harder. Until he gets our attention. Because God disciplines those he our culture tells us that we're to eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But the appointed end for Christians is not destruction in the grave. It's a resurrection by God's power. Our bodies are not meant for indulgence. They're meant for the glory of God. We don't have to have everything we crave. Because we're not brute beasts. We're children of the living God. You know that? Do you believe that? We need to understand that as believers, we are now temples of the Holy Spirit. And so we ought to glorify God with our bodies. Not gratify ourselves by succumbing to our basest instincts. And so to those ends, how about we pray? Because I don't think most of us are up to it. But I know He is. So let's go to Him, the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord Jesus, please help us to glorify you with our bodies. Help us to remember that we are not our own. That we were bought with a price. Please help us in our witness by not being remiss in this. Please help us in our interactions that we might bond to our spouses and not tear our hearts apart by straying. Please help us to shine like stars in a wicked and depraved generation. Help us to make a covenant with our eyes as Job did, not to gaze lustfully at those we are not married to. Help us to remember that no temptation has seized us that is not common to man. And to always remember that you help us to bear up under it, offering a way out. But we must learn to flee temptation and not feed on it, or it will feast on us. Lord Jesus, help us. Help us to be holy, for you are holy, and we are weak. 
Thank You that You know that we are but dust, and so in You we trust. May we etch Psalm 121 in our hearts that we might not sin against Thee. Psalm 121 says, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is the shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep you in your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.